Well, good to be here tonight. Thank you all for coming back and joining us uh, this evening, and for anybody that's uh, watching online as well, thank you for uh, uh, participating with us. And uh, I want to start tonight by reading, uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 uh, still. I'm going to start by reading out our passage tonight in Colossians 3 verses 7 through 11, and then we'll have a word of prayer. So if you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. I don't hear pages, so you must have already turned there. You guys are on it. All right. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your graciousness towards us. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are um, Lord of lords and King of kings. Father, you are above all else. Um, you are all-powerful. You are mighty God, creator of everything, Lord. We are humbled um, to be in your presence. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to come and sing praises to you, to open up your word, uh, to hear what you have said to us. And Lord, may, may you teach us tonight through your spirit. May we enjoy our time of fellowship in your word. Uh, may it be an encouragement to us and a correction to us. Uh, and Father, we thank you for what we sang a bit ago, acknowledging what a friend we have in Jesus. So grateful. We thank you, Lord, in, in his name. Amen. Okay. Well, last time we were here, we began looking at Paul's instruction about Christians putting remaining sin to death. Uh, because, And he wanted them to do that because, as he reminded them, we have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ, and that we should be setting our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. We looked at Paul's first list of examples of things that need to be put to death. And of course, all sin in our lives needs to be, be being put to death. Um, Paul's, he, he lists out sins that carry a particularly devastating consequence for, for us. He lists out some categories of sin that cover a complete range of sexual sins. And he did this by using the general categories of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, which is idolatry, he said. And these cover any possible avenue of sexual sin. Um, you name it, whatever, whatever the sexual sin is, it fits in with these categories. It's, it's part of this list, uh, including, as we talked about last time, sins of the body and of the mind, uh, especially when it comes to sexual immorality. Okay, and that is thinking, thinking them and physically committing them. 
okay? It covers, it covers all of that. And the truth about these sins was um, clearly under attack in Paul's day. That's why he's writing this letter, and he's laying these things out for them. Um, he had to make sure that the people knew that um, there were sins that needed to be put to death in the church. Um, others were practicing these things and saying there was nothing wrong with them, and for that to creep into the church is not a good thing, and Paul's addressing that. These are not to be tolerated in the church uh, among God's people. And as you're aware, these kinds of sins are sins, they're not even sins in our day, right? They're, um, at least if you ask the unbelieving world, the list of sins that Paul had here, and as you could break it down if you wanted into all kinds of different um, aspects of sexual immorality, and our world says, that's just fine, right? No, no problem. Um, but what about the church? Um, remember, Paul's writing to the church. The church needed these words because they had been believing lies, apparently, about sexual immorality, uh, and he wanted to correct that. So then the question is, does the church today need Paul's message about sexual immorality? Yes, we do. Not just the unbelieving world, right? We, we understand the unbelieving world would be participating in these things, but it's not to be so in the church. Um, and so, um, the words we have here from Paul carry over. They're, they're just as relevant today in our day. Um, the church is being bombarded again. Perhaps it's never stopped, but at least from our vantage point, it sure seems like it has escalated, right? Um, and we're being bombarded with lies about these same sins today. Mostly through, if we're, if we're talking about the church, mostly through celebrity pastors and, and in particular musical artists. Right? These kinds of things are prevalent uh, among that group. And again, we know that the secular world seeks after and props up and celebrates sexual immorality. And we even have... Um, our government that makes laws to celebrate sexual immorality, but not the church, right? Well, wrong. It does creep in to the church, um, and the church is seemingly more and more confused on this issue because of the constant pressure from society, right, as it, as it presses in on the church and people begin to cave to what the world wants because we don't want to be different. Um, and, you know, I talk about confusion. I, I think there is some confusion about what the Bible says because people are not taught rightly what the Bible says about sexual sins. Uh, but I also think that reality is with a lot of people is that they just don't like what the Bible says. They would profess to be Christians, but they don't like, they don't like what it says about those things. And we're increasingly being told in Christian circles that the Bible is wrong about sexual immorality, right? That the Bible doesn't mean what we think it means, right? Very popular professing Christian artists are confused on the topic, and unfortunately, that leads others to confusion on the topic because they have a lot of followers. And the, the, the popular Christian artist, uh, Lauren Daigle, was on the Ellen show a couple of years ago, and Ellen asked her uh, a favorite question of talk show hosts to Christians, and the question is, is homosexuality a sin? They love to ask professing Christians that question. Um, and 
So here's what Lauren Daigle said. She's a, a Christian artist. She says, I can't say one way or the other. I'm not God. When people ask questions like that, I just say, read the Bible and find out for yourself. And when you find out, let me know, because I'm learning too. We don't like to answer that question, because, of course, she's sitting there with a host who's um, a lesbian, and so that's difficult to answer that question, at least because you know that there's, if you're in in the public eye, you're going to get lots of flack for for standing up for what the Bible says. So the question is, is she actually confused about it, or does she just not want to say it? Something we have to think about for ourselves, too. Uh, Last July, on a Apple Music radio show hosted by an openly gay man named Hunter Kelly, he was interviewing Amy Grant, which you guys all probably know. I don't know how many of you know Lauren Daigle, but everybody knows Amy Grant, right? And she said this, Who loves us more than the one who made us? None of us are uh, a surprise to God. Nothing about who we are or what we've done. That's why, to me, it's so important to set a welcome table. Because I was invited to a table where someone said, Don't be afraid, you're loved. Gay, straight, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired. We're all our best selves when we believe to our core, I'm loved. And then our creativity flourishes. We're like, I'm going to arrange flowers on your table and my table. When we're loved, we're brave enough to say yes to every good impulse that comes to us. Kind of scary. And some people might argue that that statement didn't, it didn't affirm that you can practice homosexuality and claim to be a Christian. But if we think the host uh, didn't understand it that way, look at what he said later uh, when he thanked Amy Grant for changing his life. He says, to hear Amy say on this episode that I am welcome at God's table as a gay man is so affirming. Then referring to God as a, a female, is the host, he refers to God as a female. The host closed his Twitter thread saying, God has worked many of her greatest wonders in my life through you. He says, I call God she to fight the patriarchy. Okay, so you may think that she didn't say there's no, nothing wrong, there's no sin in homosexuality, but that's how this person took it. He took it that he's perfectly fine being in unrepentant sin in that area, and he's just fine with God. And what's the problem with answering or, or, or making statements like she made? If we as Christians, especially those who have sort of a platform, make those kind of statements, what is the problem with that? What's that? Okay, they're believing a lie. For sure. Right. Right. Jesus did that, that's for sure. Well, you know, to to say the things that she said and for others, it, it leaves people confused. It leaves people who believe they're Christians, and follow her confused about the subject. Right? There was no biblical clarity in that statement, no truth in that statement. It's some things that sound good, right? They sound kind and loving. But the other devastating effect of that is that non-Christians, like that host, are, are left in their sin thinking God is just fine. 
There's no repentance. There's no salvation. They're left in their sin. When the world of Christian music is falling prey to the kinds of lies that Paul's addressing in this, in this letter to the Colossian church. Over the past few years, um, there's been a lot of professing Christian music artists that have either come out as gay or come out as affirming homosexuality as good, or they've totally renounced their Christian faith. They've walked away from their Christian faith, and especially in regard to the subject of sexual sin. And in fact, in just the last few weeks, the number one Christian album on iTunes is by an openly lesbian artist who goes by the name of Simler. Right, so she's a, a, a Christian music and openly in, in that LGBTQ lifestyle. Um, her, her lyrics are vulgar, um, and they, of course, promote her beliefs, um, all while claiming to be Christian. And this is the kind of thing that Paul was fighting against for the Colossians, that these kinds of lies would not infiltrate the church, that we cannot start believing those things, and it is just as valid for us today. And the scriptures tell us clearly what sexual immorality is, and Paul says we're to put that sin to death in us. Right? If, if, if that's something that's a part of your life, sexual immorality, as a Christian, it is to be put to death. It means we agree with the Bible about what sexual sin is, and we call it that. Right? We, we kill that sin in our own lives, and we call others to repent so that they can kill that sin in their own lives. We don't tolerate it as just fine. We call it what it is and ask God to help us get rid of it, right? Not to embrace it as a, a good impulse. And I'm pretty sure we shouldn't follow our impulses. Um, that's a dangerous thing. Put those sins to death, Paul says. And the reason he gave is because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Not, be, not because of those things only, of course, uh, but he wants to be clear that these are not these sexual sins are not somehow excluded from what brings the wrath of God, as the world would tell us, right? They would, a lot of times the argument is, well, the Bible um, is, talks more about greed and, you know, religiosity and those kinds of things than it does sexual sins. Not true. Not true because what they're getting at is sexual sins aren't that bad. These other things are real bad, but those things okay. And the church shouldn't be taken captive by those, those empty words they claim to be of God, but clearly are meant to deceive. So that was our list from last week. Those are the things that Paul went after last week as we talked about those. And then he goes on with another list of things uh, to get rid of. And we find those in the verses from uh, verse 7 through 11. But look at the next couple verses there, uh, verses 7 and 8 in Colossians 3. He says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Okay, so just like the people used to walk in the sins of sexual immorality and impurity and others, Paul's assuring them here that they also used to walk in these. Right, these used to mark their life, but now they are to fight against the flesh and put these away also, to walk in their new life in Christ. And that's how they're to walk. And we, we talked about that before, 
the idea when we see in Scripture here where it talks about our, our walk, it's our, it's our manner of life, it's how we conduct ourselves. That's, that's what he's talking about. And so we used to conduct ourselves in anger and wrath and malice and those other things. Not so anymore. And when they, when they are present, we're to get rid of them. So his other list that he says that we're to get rid of, he says, put them all away. And that word he used has the meaning of like, like taking off dirty clothes. Like you're, you're putting it off. You're taking off these things. At the end of your work day, you're all filthy and nasty, sweaty. You don't just go and go to bed with those nasty clothes on. You get rid of them. You take them off. Okay? Take them off. They're filthy. They're not fitting for one who is a Christian. That's the idea of getting rid of these things. They are not fitting for us. We have been made new. We have a new life in Christ. Those things have no part. They don't belong with us. I share Charles Spurgeon quotes a lot because I think he has such a good way with words. I like the way he, he put this and to have us consider it um, in our minds. He says, Burnt child, wilt thou play with the fire? What? When thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all thy veins once, and wilt thou play upon the hole of the asp, and put thy hand upon the cockatrice's den a second time? Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery, and wear the chain again, if it delight thee. But inasmuch as sin did never give thee what it promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage forbid thee to enter the net again. It is contrary to the designs of eternal love, which all have an eye to thy purity and holiness. Therefore, run not counter to the purposes of thy Lord. Another thought should restrain thee from sin. I thought that was really good, but I had to look up what a cockatrice was because I'd never heard of that before. I don't know if anybody else has heard of that, but apparently it was a mythological two-legged creature like a dragon with a rooster head. So people back then must have known what that was. I had to look it up. But anyway, he makes a good point, right? Why would Christians want to go back to the old way of life? Why would we want to go back seeing as how we were burnt by it, that we've been saved from it? Why would we want to go back? And these are the, the disgusting and filthy rags of our old life, which would have included, as Paul listed them, anger and wrath, slander, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. All right? Let's talk about those for a minute. First, how would you explain the difference between anger and wrath? Have you ever thought about that? How, how would you explain the difference between anger and wrath? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Mm-hmm. Destruction. Um, I think this, all of these can lead to that, yeah. And I think you're hitting on some, some truth that we're going to see in these. I think anger would be in a different category, 
I think it would come before what you're describing. Anger is more of an, uh, an emotional state. It's, it's deep inside. It's, it's there. It's, it's existing there, kind of, you know, smoldering under the surface. And that's kind of the picture we have there. A person can be known as an angry person. Um, it, it, um, it's a person's sort of disposition in that case. If somebody's known as an angry person, it's their, their disposition more than a description of their actions, which we'll get to. But it's just kind of there. That anger is there, and it can, it can stay there for a while. Sure, yeah, I think there's a, there's a progression there, right? Yeah. Well, what is it like? Do you guys know what it's like to be around a, someone that you would describe as an angry person? Maybe you've worked with someone who's angry. What's that like? Miserable. What else? Yeah, stressful. What are you thinking when you're around that person besides those things? What else might you be thinking? Scared. Right? Scared because what? They could hurt you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all those are true. I think it's a real bummer to be around people like that. It can bring you down, and, and it also causes you to have to be really careful around that person right? You don't want that anger to turn into something else. Now, wrath, wrath is more like anger made visible, right? It's like the boiling over of a, of a pot of anger um, when it can't be contained by the pot anymore because the, the stoking fire underneath has caused it to boil over, right? So, so wrath is, is described as an outburst of anger, Right? It, anger progresses to wrath. Um, where anger would be smoldering under the surface and can go on for a long time, wrath is more of a sudden explosion like you were talking about a minute ago, right? Um, wrath, it just, it's a reaction from that anger. Something else might trigger it, but that anger has been there. The wrath is like the boiling over of that. Right, right. Um, you know, I was thinking about it and trying to think of, of an example, and I was thinking of like a fault line. Um, you know, the, the pressure of the earth's plates against one another is there. It's, a, it's sort of a constant building, though really slowly, right? And it, that tension is there. Um, and every once in a while, that tension becomes too much, and there's an outburst, right? It bursts loose, which causes what we call earthquakes, and we see all the devastation and destruction um, but it lasts seconds, maybe maybe a minute or two. I don't know how long the longest earthquake was. Maybe one of you guys knows, but they're not usually that long, right? Uh, it's this sudden burst, and it causes a lot of damage, and then it sort of subsides. But that pressure is still there, waiting for another time to break loose and cause another earthquake. But it causes a lot of damage. And malice, you know, we go on to malice. Malice is a, a wickedness um, as an evil, evil habit of one's mind. Okay, now we're getting into the mind. Malice describes sort of the vicious intention and expresses a, a desire to hurt another person. And beyond that, it rejoices in doing so. It's, it's glad to hurt someone else. 
That's what we see with malice. Malice is, uh, think about it, malice is like anger and wrath with a plan. Right? You have those other two, and malice puts those into action through thought and intention. Um, it is the mind being engaged by the anger and the wrath. And it's really, this term malice is common in today's courtrooms. You know, um, as I sat in courtrooms um, when I was bailiffing up there, you hear often terms like malice aforethought. Okay, we don't, we really don't hear that outside of, that word outside of church or the courtroom these days, but it's still used in the courts. And, and it's the state of mind um, necessary for common law murder, including the intent to kill, the intent to commit serious bodily injury, the intent to commit a felony, and the exhibition of a depraved indifference to human life. That's how the, the criminal courts view this. And first we had forbidden subjects that seem to originate from within. Okay, Anger, wrath, malice. But now we get to things that come out in our passage tonight. We get to things that come out. Things that are products of what's inside. And that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 15, uh, 15, 18. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Okay? It's already down in there. By the time it's coming out of the mouth, it's, it's not starting at the mouth. It's, it's a, a boiling over of what's inside. And so we get to what Paul lists next, beginning with slander. Um, Slander has been described as the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame, belittle, or damage another person's reputation, causing them to fall into disrepute or to receive a bad reputation. Um, this is to try and tear down another individual. You're out to wound someone's reputation by evil reports or evil speaking. Um, we, even, we have laws against this as well. Um, our, our modern Bible translations have translated this as slander. But the word Paul used here is blasphemia, right? As you can tell, it's where we get our English word blasphemy. Um, it gets to the area of speech, and particularly what a person says that causes injury to another, uh, another person's good name. Sometimes it's translated as evil speaking. And some have suggested that slanders, slander is more a description of man's treatment of other men, uh, and blasphemy is man's treatment of God. Um, Harry Ironside said, We are also to put off blasphemy. This dreadful sin may be directed either Godward or manward. Men blaspheme against God by imputing evil to Him, or by seeking to misrepresent Him, or by perverting the truth about the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, but speaking injuriously of one another, reviling rulers or governors, circulating wicked and untruthful reports about one's brother, and seeking to harm God's servants by such evil reports, all these are also included under the general term blasphemy. And I thought about what he said there about men blaspheming against God by imputing evil to Him or by seeking to misrepresent Him. 
or by perverting the truth about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Boy, how often do we do that in our culture? We don't often call it blasphemy anymore, right? We don't, we don't use that word, but that's what's going on. When we see all the misrepresentations of God and people in, in churches that twist his word and say he said things that he didn't, and this is blasphemy, uh, very serious, and we, don't, we just don't talk of it that way. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the kind of speech that is to come out of the mouths of Christians. Right? For what is good for building up. And we are to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. That implies some responsibility here, right? If we're commanded to let this not happen, the reality is it can and does. We have some responsibility in, in preventing that, right? Going back to the subject of anger, I think we can see that it, it produces all of what uh, follows its mention in verse 8. You know, he mentions anger in verse 8, and then what follows anger uh, is a product of that. The one with an angry heart has to be diligent to replace that anger with um, a godlier trait, a godlier response. Um, when, we, when we recognize anger in our lives, if, maybe if someone else has pointed it out, we need to replace that. We recognize it, we repent of that, replace it with, with what is godly. The danger is that our flesh tends toward the outgrowths of that anger. And, and it's more difficult for some people than others. We, we can't handle having anger in our lives. You may be able to handle it for a while, and when I mean handle it, I mean keep it sort of hidden. But eventually, that's going to come out. Of course, you know of people, we, we talked about that earlier, who don't, aren't good at concealing it. <laughs> it comes out all the time. Uh, but something that James said about anger, he said in James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does that tell you about your anger? Not from God. Okay, could our anger, could there be any anger in us that is from God? Righteous indignation, okay? So, what's an example of that? <laughs> okay, the only person who's ever truly had righteous indignation, Jesus, okay. Yeah, was somebody else going to say something? I thought I saw a hand, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. Right, so someone harming another person could cause anger, and you want to help deal with that situation. So that gets to, I think, a point that when you think about sin, can we be righteously angered, angered over sin? If I see sin in myself, if I see sin in a brother or sister, can I be righteously anger, angry about that? Maybe. 
Okay. So you're describing a line, right? So we can be angry about something, I think righteously angry about sin, but I can cross a line in that, right? So this has something to do with, and it's not just with my actions, I can cross that line in my thoughts as well, right? We should be angry over sin. God is angry over sin, and we, we should be angry over it. But also being careful that I'm not crossing the line into vengeance, uh, um, sort of unrighteous condemnation of a person. Uh, yeah. Right, there you go. The Bible tells us we can be angry, but the catch is we can't sin in that. How, how hard is that? It's hard. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and so it comes down to it really comes down to self control. We can be righteously angry over something, as long as it's something the scripture says we can be angry about, like sin. But my response can't cross the line into sin. My response has to be a godly response. So a godly response to the sin in a brother or sister's life would be for me to lovingly go to that brother or sister and confront them about their sin. Um, but if in that confrontation I'm, I'm out of control, I'm yelling, screaming, I'm prideful, I've, now I've crossed the line. I'm sinning in that. It's no longer a, a righteous anger. I've... I've I've sinned. Maybe it was sin in their life, but now I've sinned as well. So we have to watch ourselves. We have to be careful um, because our, as that the whole point that of what James is saying, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If I am angry over sin, I'm angry over what God's angry over, and that can produce the righteousness of God. But if it's just me being angry because maybe I've been inconvenienced by it or, or their sin was against me, and my response is sinful, then, then I'm wrong. Was it somebody else going to say something? I thought I saw a hand. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, you've just crossed the line. <laughs> I think, I think we forget something when we maybe are righteously angered over something and we go to deal with it and we sin in our response, we have forgotten something. We have forgotten how we sinned against God and how he forgave us. And now we've become prideful and respond in a way that sends a message, I don't sin like that, right? So we got to be careful. Um, we can't expect, what was that? Yeah, so in other words, what James, with what James is saying, we can't expect that the outcome of our, our anger, even if we feel justified, will, will be something godly. We have to be very careful. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have, yeah, we have to be very vigilant in our own lives. So, we should understand that there are times and ways that we can be angry and it's not sin, but it's so easy for us to cross the line into sin. We, we have to watch ourselves that we don't fall into that. Um, and then next, Paul mentions, the next thing he mentions is obscene talk. This is, this is foul speaking, not F-O-W-L. This is not a conversation about chickens, right? This is foul, F-O-U-L, foul speaking. Um, it's low or obscene speech. Some translations have filthy communication, filthy language, dirty language, abusive language or shameful speaking. Um, one commentator said once, he's describing a story, he says, once I heard someone begin a story with the remark, as there are no ladies here, I want to tell you something I heard the other day. And another gentleman in the group checked him with a wise answer. Brother, though there are no ladies present, the Holy Ghost is here. Is your story fit for him? The first man blushed in confusion and accepted the rebuke. We did not hear the story. Interesting. <laughs> this is how we do it, right? Now, maybe ladies don't understand this. But I think this is how guys do this, right? We, we think we, um, we can justify obscene talk if we have the right audience, right? But this is never to be present in the Christian life uh, for, for men or women, this kind of obscene talk. Well, when another Christian, now I think perhaps we've all experienced this at some time in our life, when another Christian starts to speak this way, why do we shy away from being the guy who says, brother, though there are no ladies present, the Holy Spirit is here. Why do we shy away from being that guy? Okay. Okay. So fear of what others might think. Sure. Maybe maybe they're embarrassed to say something like that. Right? We don't want to be the guy who's holier than thou, right? We don't want to be viewed as that guy, so we keep our mouths shut. I was thinking about that story and, and I thought, well, that guy's he's really brave. He did the right thing. He wasn't he wasn't angry at him. But he recognized what was going on and what was about to happen, right? If you're setting up your story with, normally I wouldn't say this, but I'm going to because the right people are here, uh, then he recognized what was going to follow was 
is probably not fit for a Christian. And so to call that brother out um, is the right thing to do, though it's difficult. And we're, we're not in the practice of doing those things uh, in, in general. I mean, maybe some of you are, and that's great. Um, but we should be better about that. We should be willing to be, I mean, because that's a loving thing to do for that brother, to remind him of what our speech should be like as Christians. It wasn't, a, it wasn't unrighteous anger or, or anything. It was a, a caution, a word of caution to this brother for what he was about to do. Um, and and it, he said in that story, he accepted the rebuke and he didn't tell the story. Great. Uh, we should all be ready and willing to do that. So easy to, to not do that, though. The Bible, Bible tells us that for the Christian, these kinds of things don't fit. They're, this kind of obscene talk, these, these things are not part of, should not be part of the Christian life. Um, Ephesians 5, 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And when we're tempted to speak this way, we should, hopefully we would sort of monitor ourselves in that. When we're, when we're tempted to speak in a way in which we shouldn't, we should replace that with words of thanksgiving. Uh, if we find ourselves having fallen to this, we should repent and give thanks to God for His forgiveness for that sin. Um, and for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even if the Holy Spirit used another brother or sister to convict us. Then he goes on in verse 9 and says, do not lie to one another. Um, this, is a, this is a deliberate act, right? Um, it's, it's been mankind's problem from the very beginning, starting with Satan's lie. Um, all, all lying comes from the character of Satan. That's who he is. He's the liar. He's the father of lies. Um, and when, when unbelievers lie, they're acting just like their father, the devil. And when, it, when we as Christians lie, we're acting like we belong to Satan, but we don't. Right? We don't. And that's the point of all these verses. As we can see by what Paul says here at the end of verse 9 through 10, uh, look at that with me in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Paul's saying, he's been saying, do not do these things. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, again, we're, we're back to the subject of what Christians had formerly been and what they are now. We've, we've put off the old self and its practices by our new birth in Christ. The new has been put on, put off, and put on. And those are terms we should know and live by as Christians, this idea of putting off and putting on. We should, and we should understand those terms in two ways. We have put off the old and put on the new man once through our justification in Christ, right through our new birth. It's, it's a done deal. We've put off, we've put on. It's how we are in reality, in position. And the second way we should think about this putting off and putting on is that we must continually put off the old and put on the new man through our sanctification. Right? It's, it's how we are to be in practice. So, we have, by... By the fact of our salvation, 
been justified. We have put off the old self and put on the new. Christ has done that. Now, as we continue to live this life, we need to, in practice, be putting off and putting on all these things, anger, malice, wrath, slander, obscene talk, sexual immorality, impurity, all those things, killing those things, so that this is part of our progressive sanctification as Christians. And wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to struggle with the flesh at all? Still, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, right? <laughs> but we must know that it, it's how it is, right? And, and it's also for a reason. What, what benefit can you think of that there would be for us in this struggle? What, what benefit could there possibly be for us? Not that we should desire to have a struggle with flesh or to sin, but what benefits can God bring out of that? Humility, okay. Okay, yeah, faith that God can accomplish what we can't. Sure. What else? What other benefits do we have as Christians from this struggle? More empathy? Okay. That's really important, right? I mean, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, right? And if we uh, become Christians and we get all high and mighty and we see other people sinning and we, we're just angry at them and we don't share the gospel with them, um, we're, we're not doing what's right. But the fact that we know where we came from, right, what Christ did for us should cause us to have compassion on that person who's, who's where we used to be. Not putting them down or anything like that, but understanding that they're lost. They need the Savior. They need to have that old man put off and put on the new. And so, yeah, it should be, bring, bring about compassion for, for lost people. I think another thing that we see here, another benefit, is that others can uh, witness lives lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? A, a transformation in a person. Perhaps you're, some of you might have this kind of a, a testimony that you were an unbeliever around unbelievers and they knew you a certain way. God saved you and he, he has transformed you and other people saw that and it was undeniable that you were changed. Um, and that brings glory to God. Because it gives you the opportunity to, to talk about how it wasn't you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit changing you. Um, so it, the fact that we struggle still, and then people see this, how even though you fall to sin sometimes, they can see your response, which is a broken and contrite spirit, a repentant heart, confessing that, turning from that, and trusting in God. They see that. Right? Maybe they see it over and over, hopefully not too much, because that means you got, you know, you're not killing sin enough. But, but they can see that, and it can bring glory to God, that people can see changed lives. Yeah. A little before my time, but 
Sure. 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 Now, now we shouldn't use that to say words have no value. I don't need to bother. Because some people do that, right? They take it to an extreme and say, well, I don't need to share the gospel. I can live the gospel. Well, the gospel needs to be preached. Yes, we need to live obedient lives to Christ, and that is evidence of the power of the gospel in our lives, but we need words. But I do hear what you're saying. I think you're right. People do watch us. They do watch. So, this struggle, though it's hard, it, it brings glory to God when we, as the world witnesses our sanctification, as other believers see our sanctification, they are encouraged. But it is a painful process nonetheless. You know, Romans 8, and 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We, we groan for this, right? That's why I asked that question. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to have this struggle with the flesh? But, um, but the Scripture speaks to that. It, it acknowledges that. This is a, a difficulty. Uh, and we are longing for what has been promised. We're longing as a church for Christ's return and for our glorified bodies to not have this struggle with the flesh. Um, and so one day, that is the case. One day, um, uh, the redemption of our bodies will be a reality. Uh, we'll no longer battle with the flesh. And in the meantime, we should, I think, pray like David. In Psalm 141, verse 3, he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why would he pray something like that? Yeah, right? There's an acknowledgement there. Is <clears throat> a struggle. Our mouths are a struggle. What we say, um, it, it's, a, it's a real struggle. And so he's acknowledging, yes, the, the need for God. We need our helper, which is the Holy Spirit uh, in this struggle. And we can see from the rest of verse 10 how the Spirit helps us because Paul says our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And renewed in knowledge can only mean one thing for the Christian. It's not philosophical knowledge or scientific knowledge or psychological knowledge, but biblical knowledge. Um, there's hundreds of verses we could use to talk about the benefits of the knowledge of God's Word, um, but I just want to share four quick ones with you from Psalm 119, and it's kind of a, kind of a progression, though these verses are not together. Psalm 119 verse 4 says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And then verse 69 says, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Yeah, we begin to see this, what it's like here, right? They smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. And verse 128 says, therefore, <clears throat> I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. This is our mindset. This should be our mindset. And then one seven, verse 173 in Psalm 119 says, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Again, we acknowledge there, the psalmist acknowledges the, the need for God's precepts, the, the fact that we desire that, but also an acknowledgement, we need God's help. All right, he says, let your hand be ready to help me. And God has graciously given us his spirit 
to help us. And this renewal is it's on a continual basis. Uh, it, it is, as Paul said, after the image of its creator. Whose creator? The new man's creator, right? What is his image? What is the image of the new man's creator? What's that? The image of Christ, right? The righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience to the Father. That's what um, God will do. Uh, remember, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God will do this. He is doing this in His children. And He's the only one who can do it. We are to participate in that for sure, to desire that, but make no mistake that it is God who is working that out in His children. Now let's finish with verse 11, Colossians 3.11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul's not saying that Greeks or Jews don't exist, right? Or that there, there aren't some who are circumcised and uncircumcised. He's not saying there are no barbarians or Scythians on earth either. He's also not saying no one is a slave and that there aren't those who are free from the bonds of slavery. That's not, that's not the point. We must ask the question, what does Paul mean by here in verse 11? Is he talking about Colossae? Is he talking about a geographical location at all? What does he mean by here in verse 11? What's that? The new man, okay, in Christ. So if you talk about where is here, here is in Christ. You're a new man in Christ. In his church, that's where. Those who are in Christ are from all those groups that he listed. That's the point, right? The gospel is not bound to any cultural, ethnic, racial, societal, or, or etc. standard. And Paul makes it clear that Christ is all and in all. He is all salvation, all knowledge. He's all we need, and He is in all. Now, is He in all, meaning every human being? Is that what He means by Christ is in all? There you go. All who have come to Him in repentance and faith. Those who have been saved, those who have been born again, that's who Christ is in. So in all of those, whether they are from the category of barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, God's church is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, right? Right. So that's what he means by here. He's not talking about a geographical location. Here in Christ. So there, there is then not any Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It's really a great truth for us to remember. All this putting off and putting on is only possible for those who are in Christ. But it, what we have to remember is it is possible. And, and God is working that out in us as Christians.
There you go. Absolutely. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight and thank you for these reminders, um, for this instruction from Paul about all these things, Lord, these sinful practices that are not fitting for the Christian. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to kill these sins in our life, that we would desire your word, or that we would replace these with thanksgiving. We would replace these with godly practices. We'll look at that next week, Lord, as we continue in what Paul has said to see what we should be replacing these things with. And we thank you, Lord, that it is never done by our own strength. Lord, you have given us exactly what we need by giving us your Holy Spirit, by giving us your word. And so help us, Lord, to delight in your word. Help us to crave it. And Lord, we thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. And not just telling us what to do and leaving us to ourselves, but telling us what to do and then strengthening us to do it. You are so gracious and kind. Um, We're grateful and we love you for it, Lord. Help us daily to walk worthy of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.